Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. A fear of lawsuits shifts Utah lawmakers' approach to a bill that would restrict access for transgender people. A Utah lawmaker proposes a ban on polygraph tests for those who report sexual abuse. And at the Sundance Film Festival, Kieran Culkin has notes, Christopher Reeve's children speak, and actors learn to talk Sasquatch. Joining me today are Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Emily, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Thanks good, for having me. Good morning. Investigative reporter Jessica Miller is with us. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. And culture editor Sean P. Means is with us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, a note that uh, news columnist Robert Gerke, usually with us, is not today. He had a, a conflict, uh, another commitment. Uh, so we'll start with uh, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Um, so let's start with your latest uh, story. I guess we'll cut to the chase here and then work backward from that. Uh, this this bill has passed the Senate. Right. And it will likely, um, you know, it has it's passed the House, it's passed the Senate and the House will likely concur on it today, which would mean it would be sent to Governor Spencer Cox's desk to be signed. So this is what we're talking about is uh, Representative Kara Berkland's House Bill 257. Um, this has gone through several changes, and we made reference to that. Uh, I guess fear of lawsuit uh, prompted some changes. But let's first talk about uh, its, its, its final form here that seems headed toward the governor's desk. What would this do? So it would do quite a few things. The main part of it is that it would legally define uh, female and male and state code to only include people whose reproductive organs they were born with, um, it, it would define them by that. So, you know, for a uh, woman, it would be people who have whose reproductive organs they're born with have the potential to produce ova. Um, and for men, it would be whose reproductive organs have the potential to fertilize ova. Um, and so what that does is it essentially excludes transgender people from those definitions. Um, the latest version of the bill also defines women's bathrooms and men's bathrooms. Um, each is spaces only designated for the exclusive use of females and males, respectively, meaning that effectively uh, transgender people are banned from the restrooms that affirm their gender identity. Uh, so, you know, the, the bill pushes for more single occupancy um, spaces in in government-owned buildings um, so that, you know, some of those folks have a place to go. They don't have to go to into a restroom they feel uncomfortable with, but I imagine it'll take quite a quite a while to add some of those um, stalls to, to buildings, um, to buildings. This only applies to government-owned and um, controlled buildings, but there's still a lot of questions as to um, how it might have impacts on, say, the Salt Lake City International Airport, which is owned by Salt Lake City, or um, other spaces within the state. And also, just changing the legal definitions of female and male, we're not sure what repercussions that might have throughout state code. So this is, I guess, uh, state-owned, and I guess that would filter to city-owned and 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 so forth. Uh, what? To, tell me the changes that were made as this. And went I also along. want to add that would filter down to schools. So a lot oh, of schools, a lot yes. Of kids, a lot of kids would, um, you know, the the requirement is that schools would meet with um, trans students' parents to create privacy plans. 
Um, so a lot, a lot of times that might mean students have to go to faculty bathrooms or the nurse's office to use the restroom. Um, but um, I'm sorry, can you repeat your question uh, one more time? Yes, there were some changes uh, yeah. made and, and apparently uh, fear of lawsuits played into this. Right. So on Wednesday, uh, Senator Dan McKay, the Senate sponsor of the bill, pulled out the um, restroom part of the bill for trans adults. Uh, so essentially, you know, at that point, trans adults, if it had passed that way, could have gone to any restroom they felt most comfortable in. Um, and the law would have only applied to changing rooms, which would have included locker rooms, showers, and dressing rooms, but it still would have applied in schools. But a lot of people saw this as a little bit better version of, of the bill. But then Thursday morning, as it was coming up for its last vote in the Senate, uh, there was a substitute made public that added the bathroom part back in when it added in those legal definitions of women's bathroom and men's bathroom. And I think as this went along, uh, there was language... Um... Uh, applying these rules to uh, what state funded um, operation, but right. that was that was removed. Yeah, it, it, the initial version of the bill would have applied to any publicly funded facility. So that probably would have wrapped in um, the Delta Center. Uh, it probably would have wrapped in a lot of other sporting facilities. Um, it also probably would have impacted domestic violence shelters, rape crisis centers, really any um space that receives government grants in the state uh and so the impacts there would have been much more sweeping um and that was one of the compromises that lawmakers made with this as they were trying to appease cities and um work with some of the stakeholders that were concerned about how it might impact uh federal grants they were were receiving um to remove those concerns from the bill so now it focuses on government owned and controlled spaces. Um, so I think under the bill, final uh, version, some trans adults would, uh, I guess, have an exception to this. So this would be somewhat limited. Right. There is an exception written into the bill that if a, pers a person has um, bottom surgery um, and changes their birth certificate, that they can have access to the space that aligns with their gender identity. However, there are some issues there because bottom surgery is pretty expensive. A lot of people who are trans can't afford it. And it's also very invasive. So it can be pretty painful, hard to recover from. Um, and so a lot of people choose not to have it because they don't want to, uh, they, they feel like that that won't be best for them and their bodies. Uh, and another issue is that with birth certificates, some states actually legally won't change birth certificates. Like, Florida, for example. And so if you were born in a state that won't change your birth certificate, there's no way you can have access to these spaces. And I'm not sure if this this bill or uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, uh, schools, um, they're, I don't know, they're mandating or they're allowing privacy plans. Tell me about this. Yeah, so written into the bill is that schools would have to work with parents of trans students to create privacy plans. So if a student is trans and doesn't feel comfortable using the restroom according to the sex they were assigned at birth, um, they wouldn't be able to go into the restroom or the locker room that aligns with their gender identity and instead would have to use their own space. Uh, there are some districts that have already adopted that policy. 
Uh, earlier in the process of this bill, I talked to a student from one of those districts or a school that had a similar policy. And they said their big concern is that for students who aren't ready to tell others that they're transgender, it will let all of their class, like, classmates know that they're, they're transgender, um, which could lead to bullying and harassment and mental health issues. Another issue that that student brought up is that they have to walk really far to get to the one bathroom they're allowed to use. Um, they don't have time between bells to make that trip, and so they usually have to go during class time, and that means that they're missing a lot of instruction during the day. Um, another issue is if the bathroom's really far to get to, and you know maybe students are taking a test or have something else in class they don't want to miss, they end up having to hold, uh, hold it and not go to the restroom. Um, some, you know child and adolescent psychologists came and spoke during some of the committee hearings and brought up concerns about that, saying that they see some of their clients getting UTIs or dehydrating themselves just to avoid using the restroom. Uh, some proponents of uh, this bill uh, in, in debate or in, in hearings uh, seem to indicate one of the reasons they're supporting this is because they're worried about abuse or uh, the possibility of abuse or misbehavior in bathrooms or changing spaces. Um, but uh, reading your reporting, it, it doesn't seem they're, they're coming up with any specific instances. Yeah, that's one of the big arguments here is they're saying we need to have this bill in place, this law in place, because it keeps women safe. It protects them from assault or harassment in restrooms. But there really haven't been any examples provided of... Um, transgender people harassing or assaulting people in bathrooms uh, here in Utah or even throughout the country. Uh, Senator McKay yesterday when he was presenting the bill listed off all of these incidences of um, men assaulting women in women's bathrooms. But when he was asked whether any of those people were transgender, he said the news reports didn't say. It only said that these were men. Um, so, you know, sexual assault and lewdness is already illegal. Um, but uh, so a lot of people, a lot of the critics of the bill are questioning why this is needed. Um, if those crimes are already prosecutable, then why um, do we need to bring trans people into the mix? Uh, two Republicans, current year reporting, voted uh, with Democrats against uh, this uh, bill in the Senate. Senator Thatcher and Weiler, did they say why they voted against um, Senator Weiler had spoken in earlier um, committee hearings about it. He didn't speak yesterday about his vote, but in earlier committee hearings, he'd said that uh, he was concerned that it only focused, it's only seemingly focused on trans people and didn't focus on cisgender people. He pointed out that men in men's bathrooms can behave inappropriately too. Um, and he also, you know, brought up the possibility of litigation. Uh, Senator Thatcher brought up the same, the possibility of litigation. And he said that, um, you know, according to his reading of the bill, he thinks that it's unconstitutional unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Um, so this is passed the House, passed the Senate, heading toward the governor. Uh, do we, do, do we have any... It still has one more step. Oh, one more step. Okay. Uh, looks like it probably will. Um do we, do we have any tea leaves to read? Do we know which way the governor's leaning on this? Um, we really don't entirely. I've reached out to them multiple times and they have uh, not responded to me. During his state of the state, he casted a portion of the bill in a positive light, saying that lawmakers had the opportunity to expand 
opportunities for women, um, which, you know, that's part of a portion of the bill that will codify in state law um, portions of Title IX. But he hasn't really said which way he might go on on the bill. He has 10 days to decide. Um, If he doesn't decide within those 10 days, then it would automatically go into effect. If he vetoes it, it will come back to the legislature um, to see if they can override it with two-thirds votes in each chamber, which according to the votes we've seen so far, the legislature would get. Um, if, or, you know, he can sign it and if he signs it, then it will be effective immediately. There are some portions of the bill that won't be effective until May and that's penalties for government entities who haven't, um, tried to enforce the bill, but, uh, the, the impacts, it would start impacting trans Utahns immediately. You mentioned earlier, uh, Salt Lake City's, uh, concerns, especially about the airport, uh, were those addressed in the final version? So as far as with the Salt Lake City Airport, um, you know, when it comes to restrooms, uh, there isn't a criminal penalty for trans people who want to use the uh, restroom that aligns with their gender. They're not going to be arrested or cited for doing that. Um, So that's the uh, kind of the compromise that lawmakers see here is that people who are maybe passing through the Salt Lake City Airport, can use the restroom that aligns with their gender identity without getting in trouble with the law. Um, and there, there aren't necessarily a lot of locker rooms in the airport where they could get in trouble with the law, but there, it, it, it mostly focuses on inappropriate behavior. Um, so unless a trans person passing through Utah um, behaves inappropriately, inappropriately in the restroom, um, lawmakers say that it won't, it won't be an issue for them. Um, you know, city officials have still said we have a lot of parks, we have a lot of buildings where we're worried this will become an issue, where we have to retrofit. And uh, and they've also just said that they don't like the way that it makes um, seems to portray the trans community, that it seems to portray them as predators. Uh, so, so one uh, worry, uh, at least for some uh, proponents of the bill, was a potential federal withdrawal of funds from Utah's domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. Have they they changed the bill that that that's not going to be an issue? Yeah, there were initially a few lines in there that um, would have applied to domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers as far as um, gender-specific spaces. It would have kept trans people from accessing a lot of the services there. Um, And those lines ended up being struck from the bill. But, you know, um, when it was still publicly funded spaces where these laws would have applied that still would have impacted those space, those facilities. Um, and so that's part of the reason why lawmakers changed it from publicly funded to government owned and controlled spaces um, is so that these domestic violence shelters, rape crisis centers wouldn't be impacted. Um, under a lot of the federal grants they receive, there are stipulations and one of them is that they can't discriminate against people based on their gender identity. Um, and so so a lot of the domestic violence shelters in the state, you know, some of which receive up to 70% of their funding from the federal government, um, were worried that they wouldn't be able to sustain their services. Uh, so um, we talked earlier about lawsuits. Uh, does it look likely or unlikely that this uh, bill, should it pass, get the governor's signature, would face lawsuits? Well, it, 
you know, lawmakers say that some of the changes they make reduces their vulnerability to lawsuits. But based on what we've seen in some other states that have adopted uh, similar um, policies, similar sec definitions of sex, it looks pretty likely that we may see some legal challenges here. Um, a spokesperson from the ACLU said they're going to do whatever they can to, to defend the civil rights of trans Utahns. And if that includes legal action, they will take it. And so uh, if, if we see legal action in the state, um, I would keep an eye on the ACLU because in other states where we've seen legal action, like Montana and Kansas, it's come from their chapters of the ACLU. Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to how it's applied and how people are impacted. And um, based on the language of the bill, we will likely see sweeping impacts. Uh, so finally here, um, the, the Democrats are... Uh, I would say beyond disagreeing with the bill, they're upset. Uh, Democratic Senator Jen Plum, you quote, a doctor from Salt Lake City with a transgender child uh, said, I feel like I've failed my child. Uh, Senate, uh, Representative Angela Romero, the, the House Minority Leader, uh, describes, she says, we're hurting. Yeah, this is a deeply personal issue for a lot of state Democratic lawmakers. Um you, uh, yesterday, they all wore black to mourn the passing of this and a, another bill that would roll back diversity, equity, and inclusions measures in the state. Um, and as they were holding a news conference talking about how these bills will impact the state, a lot of them were crying. Their faces were reddened. Um, they were really upset with how, how they see it likely affecting their constituents and even, you know, their own personal lives. Mm. Well, uh, Emily Anderson Stern, thank you for uh, telling us about this. Thanks, Tom. I uh, know we need to let you go. Need to go get uh, some reporting done up there on the hill. So appreciate uh, appreciate you joining us. Of course. Emily Anderson Stern, State Watch reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, has been with us in this uh, first segment of the bill. Uh, following a break, uh, here is the headline: A Utah lawmaker proposes a ban on polygraph tests for those who report sexual abuse. We'll be talking with Salt Lake Tribune investigative reporter Jessica Miller. You are listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. More following this break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. And we turn to this headline, a Utah lawmaker proposes a ban on polygraph tests for those who report sexual abuse. Uh, Salt Lake Tribune uh, investigative reporter Jessica Miller joins us. Thanks, Jessica. Of course. Thank you. Um, so this is Representative Romero, I believe. What what uh, What is she proposing? Yeah, so the bill that she's proposing would ban any um, government officials, so law enforcement, prosecutors, anyone like that, um, from conducting a polygraph test for someone who is reporting a, a sexual assault. Um, it's not clear how often that's happened in Utah, but I, we know that it has happened. Um, and, you know, the, the problem that she's trying to fix here is, you know, polygraph tests are generally pretty unreliable for everyone. I mean, they're not allowed in court. Uh, if you're a defendant, that they're really, really unreliable. And research has shown that specifically with sex assault victims, um, they are even more unreliable. You know, you're, you're talking to people about their trauma and that tends to, um, or that can bring up kind of a physical response or emotional, you know, response. And 
So sometimes that emotional response translates to the polygraph test as uh, being deceptive. So they're very, very unreliable for everyone, but specifically for sexual assault victims. Uh, so your previous reporting uh, on former therapist uh, Scott Owen, um, a man identified as Andrew, uh, told his story. Would you tell us uh, that? Yes. Yeah. Andrew had been going to um, his therapist, Scott Owen, and wanted to report to state licensors that he um, had been touched inappropriately during those sessions. He reported that um, Scott Owen had groped him, kissed him, you know, really touched him in ways that are inappropriate for a therapist to do. And so when he went to the licensing division to report this, um, the division said that they offered a polygraph test to both um, Scott and uh, and his former patient. And the therapist denied the accusation, would not take a polygraph test. But Andrew did take a polygraph test because the investigator kind of reasoned like, hey, this is kind of your word against his. If you take this test, it could really bolster our our case. You know, it kind of shows that um, that you're telling the truth. Um, However, you know, as I mentioned earlier, these these tests are so unreliable for um, sexual assault victims. And he describes just feeling, you know, they're asking all these things that happened in therapy. And it really elicited this emotional response uh, that indicated that he was being deceptive. Um, and this really is it's a very, very difficult thing for, you know, sexual assault victims already often feel like they're not believed. And systemically, you know, we've not done a great job of of believing them. And so when you have a polygraph test that shows that that he was deceptive, it really sent his mental health spiraling at a really difficult time to the point where he didn't participate in the investigation any longer. Um, and he really didn't get to see it through to a conclusion. Uh, and I guess that is the the problem, right? Already emotional. And if you're, you're asked to be under polygraph test and recount your trauma, uh, that's it's going to show up in unpredictable ways on this already unreliable test. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in that case, um, the the therapist, Scott Owen, he did end up uh, admitting to some non-sexual touching, and he was given a public reprimand, and, but was allowed to continue practicing until almost two years, until a couple other patients came forward with uh, with similar accusations. Um, and so I think, you know, looking back in hindsight, the state licensor said that they felt like they they handled that case um, the best that they could, or they handled it properly considering the evidence that they had. But from what we can tell, they really just relied on the therapist saying he didn't do it and this polygraph test that showed a deceptive result. We should note uh, that uh, after reporting Salt Lake Tribune, ProPublica, um, Scott Owens is now facing several charges, right? Yeah, yeah. So as part of uh, my investigation, you know, I, I spoke with uh, with Andrew and a, a couple other former patients who had similar experiences. I think by now I've probably talked with nine or maybe 12 um, of his former patients who had similar um, experiences. Uh, after the our story came out, the Provo Police Department did do an investigation, and uh, Scott Owen is now facing about, I think, almost nearly a dozen felonies for uh, lead sexual abuse in connection with three of his patients. Uh, what's happening in other states? What what do other states uh, have as uh, in terms of laws or rules about polygraph tests for those reporting sexual assault? 
So in about half of, of other states, there are laws specifically banning this, exactly what Representative Romero wants to do um, be, for this very reason, because, you know, experts, it's, it's shown how unreliable this is for sexual self-victims. It's shown how damaging this is. And so, uh, like I said, half of states ban that for that reason. Um, in Utah, there is no restrictions right now for uh, giving polygraph tests for sexual assault victims or really any other victim at this point. I want to read this quote you got from uh, Representative Romero. I think it's important. She says, in Utah, like many other states, we don't do a good job prosecuting perpetrators, and many of those perpetrators are serial uh, offenders. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, Utah has a higher than average um rape rate i don't i can't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head but this is an issue specifically for utah um and i think that you know i've, I've been reporting about sexual assault here for gosh like a decade now and this does seem like a a, a typical or a reoccurring theme that we're seeing like you know the, the police might not believe someone or, or prosecutors don't take the case i mean these are very challenging um cases to do because you know generally there's not a lot of witnesses to a sexual assault it is it can often be a, a he said she said case um but i think that research has shown and you know advocates like Rep representative romero you know are pretty spot on when they say that that utah is not doing the best job systemically in handling these cases so Representative Romero has introduced this legislation. Uh, do we know where, where that stands at this point? Um, yeah, it's it hasn't gotten very far. It hasn't gotten its first committee hearing yet. I know that, that uh, you know, some of these other bills that we talked about in this program have really been fast-tracked, and some of these ones that aren't, you know, the priorities uh, haven't been. So there's still a lot of time left in the session. So I, I don't know if there's really anything to read into the fact that it hasn't had its first committee hearing yet, but... Um, that's kind of where we're at. It hasn't been debated yet publicly. You're listening to Behind the Headlines. We're talking right now with investigative reporter Jessica Miller. Uh, Jessica, I want to talk to you about another uh, story or two. Uh, this one just out this week um, uh, has to do with uh, Ralph Menzies. Uh, he uh, was convicted of murder. Um, he's been on death row for 36 years. State officials now um, say his all of his appeals are exhausted they want to execute him what's uh, what, what's the problem yeah so um he you know as you said he's been on death row for 36 years and uh that's not that unusual honestly for um death penalty cases in utah um he has exhausted as you said but exhausted all of his direct conviction appeals and so the the attorney general's office now is asking a judge to sign a death warrant for him to be executed but I think that there are a couple of problems that his defense attorneys have, have brought up. Um, one, there is another lawsuit that isn't challenging his conviction, but it is um, challenging methods of execution, saying that the way that Utah does a firing squad execution, which is how he's elected to, um, to be executed, is unconstitutional. Um, that case is kind of, it's in a weird like middle place. So there's that. But I think the larger issue that we're seeing right now is his attorneys have filed a motion asking for his competency to be evaluated because he has dementia. And so they are arguing that he is really having a difficult time grasping you know, why the state wants to execute him. He's, you know, he, and 
And it, it is, and they're arguing that it's unconstitutional for the state to execute him given this advanced stage of dementia they say that he's at. Um, so how does this manifesting itself, this dementia? Um, so they said that he has, you know, had kind of had this like chronic dizziness for the last couple of years and he fell off a, a ladder while working at, at the prison in 2018 and he was in the hospital for a couple of days. And they said like from there, this has just continued to to escalate. He's lost like 75 pounds in the last two years. He uses a walker to, to get around. Um, he had an MRI done uh, about a year ago, last March, um, because he kept falling. And his attorney said that, that the MRI showed that his brain tissue shrink, shrinking due to the progression of his dementia, which is causing like, he's, he's confused. He has a difficult recalling conversations. He, you know, uh, his daily schedule, you know, he forgets things, things like that. And so because his, his, he's mentally so severely compromised, um, they are arguing that, that it is, you know, it, it, it's unconstitutional for, for Utah to execute him essentially. Hmm. Um, so in your story, you remind us what he's convicted of. Tell us briefly about that. Yeah. And his, his he was convicted for a 1986 homicide he had abducted a, a convenience store worker named maureen hunsaker and um took her to a picnic area in big cottonwood canyon um strangled her and and cut her throat there so that's what he's uh been convicted of and um i don't think his appeals in the last couple of years have really been based off of like his innocence i think mostly he's been arguing maybe he shouldn't have he shouldn't have been convicted to die or there were other issues in his trial or convictions, things like that. So you point out the last execution in Utah was 2010, Ronnie Lee Gardner, he faced a firing squad um, for the, for the murder of attorney Michael Burdell as he was trying to escape from a courthouse. So that's, that's 14 years since the last execution. Yeah. And that was actually the last um, execution by firing squad in the nation. So we're kind of like the only ones who are still doing um, executions in this way. Um, for a lot of these these men they've been on death row for so long they were kind of like grandfathered in they could choose like you're available you are allowed to choose the way that that you can be executed at the time that you were convicted and so a lot of these death row inmates have chosen to die by a firing squad um though in utah now i think a, a couple of years ago they changed the law where if they can't get the um right combination of lethal injection drugs um they can uh, execute someone by firing squad. So I think we're one of very few states that still um, allow this method and have used it in recent history. So if you go to sltrib.com and read Jessica Miller's uh, story at the bottom there, there's a link to uh, uh, reporting from two years ago, Jessica. I don't know if you remember this, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I went back and read this story. Uh, the 2022 uh, session of the legislature uh, the legislature did did take up a bill that would abolish the death penalty. That failed, uh, but but it uh, you know it has some of the usual arguments here. Um, there there's a photograph of a flyer that was put out um, showing the, the 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 seven men on Utah's death row. Um, Twenty years, thirty years, uh, the men on death row. This is this is not a not a swift penalty that happens. No, it's not. And it's it seems like in recent 
history, at least the last like, you know, 10 or 12 years that I've been um, with the Tribune, about every like two or three years, this topic comes up um, as a policy argument, you know, on, on Capitol Hill, whether to um, get rid of the death penalty. Um, I honestly, two years ago, I was surprised at how quickly it failed. Um, it didn't even get out of its first committee hearing. But I think the, the problem is, is, you know, you can give lawmakers this information about how expensive this is. Like it, it costs like, I mean, a million or more dollars um, compared to a life without parole um, sentence. You know, it's costly. It's ineffective. It doesn't deter a crime. These men are, are sitting on death row for decades at a time. You present all that information. And I think that there's some legislators who take that and think, you know, this is bad policy, we should change this. But then when you're at a committee hearing, and you've got a line of people whose, you know, family members have been very brutally murdered, and they are very, you know, passionately telling legislators that this is the only way that they feel like they'll get closure, or they'll get justice, is to have the the death penalty you know available um maureen hunsaker's son was one of those people two years ago who made a very impassioned plea to legislators to keep this as an option and i think given how emotional this topic can be legislators thus far have really had a hard time getting on board with eliminating that as a penalty in utah uh, I should note there are some families of victims uh, that, that, you know, advocate for abolishment of the death penalty. But as you point out, you reported in this story two years ago, uh, you know, many family members say that's the only way they can get justice. I just want to quote this from one. Um, let's see. Uh, Jessica Black, uh, she says, there are monsters in the world that should never be uh, let out of prison. So, yeah, this did fail two years ago. So I guess we'll see what happens in, in the future here. Uh, Jessica Miller, thank you for telling us about this. For sure. Thank you. And uh, we'll look for your Unplayed Story of the Week uh, coming up uh, in about 15 minutes. Uh, we're going to head toward a break. Um, and when we come back, we'll check in with the Sundance Film Festival with culture editor Sean P. Means. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. More following this. Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn now to a culture editor, uh, Sean P. Means. Uh, Sean, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for being, thanks for having me. Uh, so several uh, of you have been reporting from Sundance. This is uh, going to be a, a yearly thing, uh, obviously, for you. Um, so this headline, really, I love this headline, Sundance. Kieran Culkin has notes, Christopher Reeves' children speak, and actors learn to talk Sasquatch. That's where I want to start, Sean, uh, okay. you know, to check, checking off those interesting tidbits. So um, um, you uh, reported on uh, this film. So Kieran Culkin um, is involved with a film written and directed by Jesse Eisenberg. Um, a real pain. Tell us about this. Yes, uh, this was one of the premieres uh, I caught on Friday, actually, the first week, first weekend of the festival. Uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg uh, directed and wrote uh, this this comedy. It's about two cousins who uh, take a tour uh, to Poland, a historic tour, uh, to honor their, uh, their uh, recently departed grandmother, uh, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. And they want to go visit the, the places she, she grew up. Um, and the two, the two cousins are very different. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character is very uh, tight and sort of neurotic. And uh, uh, Kieran Culkin's more outgoing, possibly bipolar, but uh, uh, he's, he's more sort of uh, charming and gregarious uh, with people. 
and it the the um the movie the movie shows that that uh that split between the two of them uh as they're on this trip uh the um uh the q a afterwards uh is always, is always very always very fun and funny to hear what the the actors and the the filmmakers have to say about their movies and, and what happened when they made them uh culkin talked about how this was the first time he'd ever been directed by somebody he also acted with in a movie and uh he joked he joked that uh at, you know they he thought he was having some good rapport with jesse eisenberg when they were doing a scene and then the scene they they, they yelled cut and then eisenberg like uh started giving uh giving culkin some notes and and Colin's first response uh, was, I got some notes for you too, man. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, the uh, this this one, real pain. Uh, it was one of the first movies to get a get a major distribution deal at the festival, which of course is one of the one of the aspects of the festival was it is a place for uh, uh, the the movie studios and the distributors to buy uh, movies. And uh, uh, Searchlight Pictures uh, uh, spent ten million dollars to get the uh, to get the distribution rights for this movie. So it it will be uh, arriving in theaters uh, sometime, in, most likely sometime in in twenty twenty four. Oh, we'll look for that. Uh, and that's a lot of what happens at the festival, right? Uh, distributors are looking for mm -hmm. they're purchasing movies. Um, uh, so let's see. Uh, your colleague uh, Alex Bihar uh, wrote about a. Uh, a new documentary about Christopher Reeve. Yeah, the uh, the 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 gala in Salt Lake City on on last Friday uh, was uh, at the Rose Wagner Theater, and they the movie they showed was called Superman. There's a slash between those two words, uh, which was a documentary about Christopher Reeve, who died 20 years ago this coming October. So it's been a long time since we've had Christopher Reeve with us. Uh, his children, his his now adult children, uh, were involved in the film, and they talked about how. Uh, this is, uh, they said it's time uh, that that uh, that uh, they were at a place where they could talk uh, uh, freely and openly about their dad and 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 uh, and remind people of who he was, uh, that he was more than just a movie star. I mean, people people see the image of of Christopher Reeve in the first Superman movie back in 1978, and they think, okay, yeah, that's he's a superhero, he's a guy. But uh, they talked about how uh, you know what a what a human being he was, uh, yeah, who he was as a man and uh, as a person, and uh, and also about how he how he dealt with uh, adversity and particularly the, the the horse riding accident in 1995, where he broke his neck and then he was he was a quadriplegic for the rest of his life, and, but still uh, uh, still worked to um, uh, you know campaign for uh, spinal cord research. And 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 you know, trying trying to find you know a way to cure uh, uh, the the disability that uh, uh, put him in a wheelchair. Uh, if you remember, uh, people who, people with long memories may remember that uh, there was a Super Bowl ad one year that depicted that was a had a computer animated thing of of Christopher Reeve walking uh, on a stage, and the idea was that that was the dream is that someday uh, the research would be such that uh, somebody who had a spinal cord injury to the extent that that Christopher Reeve had uh, could someday uh, be able to walk again. Yeah, so, I well remember that. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. that was had a lot of big effect. Yeah, because we were all hoping for him, right? Right, um, right. And he and he kept and he kept working too. I mean, he acted. You know, he did acting. He he was in this. He was in the Smallville series. He mm -hmm. uh, he he did a he did a TV movie remake of Rear Window. Uh, you know, so he um, you know he 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 kept going, which which is another you know testament to his 
uh, fortitude and his and his inner inner strength, which is I think something that the movie shows. Uh, so you say Sasquatch, that gets my attention. Um, mm-hmm. there, uh, your, your colleague, Pelic Chasewell, reported on a screening of Sasquatch Summer. Tell me about this film. Yeah, this was this was one of the weirder movies at the festival this year. Uh, it, it, uh, it depicted a family of Sasquatch. Uh, and of course, this is, you know, people in people in suits uh uh but uh, some of the but some actually well-known people jesse eisenberg again uh playing a sasquatch riley keogh uh the actress from uh, daisy jones and the six uh, uh playing playing a family of sasquatch and the the directors uh palak reported that to the directors at the q a at the salt lake screening uh talked about how they ran their uh they ran their actors through basically what they called the sasquatch boot camp <laughs> Where they where they sort of learned learned the moves and learned you know learned what the grunting noises should sound like and that, and all that so uh, it it's very it's very definitely one of the weirder movies of the festival all the all the reviews that we've seen of it are basically talking about how yeah this was this was kind of a a, a crazy one uh, one more from this story uh, um, you reported on a movie called Between the Temples and where where we get to see uh, Carol Kane again. Yes, uh, this is this is uh, Nathan Silver directed this, and it's a, a story about a uh, a cantor in a uh, in a synagogue in uh, upstate New York, and he's he's going through some troubles. He's played by Jason Schwartzman, uh, and he's he's uh, still dealing with things. He 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 can't sing, which is obviously something a cantor needs to do, uh, and uh, he's he's still grieving over the death of his wife. And what happens in the in the story is that a uh, he gets a surprise uh, person sitting in on his on the on the mitzvah class. He he teaches the kids who are about to go through their bar mitzvah and bat mitzvahs, and uh, he gets an unusual student. Uh, it's an older woman who turns out was his uh, grade school music teacher, uh, and she's played by Carol Kane, who we all know from Taxi and uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Adam's Family Values, and and as one of my colleagues reminded me, uh, currently appearing on the Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. Uh, and so Carol Kane plays this older woman. She's she's sort of re- trying to reconnect with her Jewish roots uh, by by going through the, the bat mitzvah that she never went through as a kid. Uh, and it, it the movie shows the relationship between these two and, and how things get a little awkward and, and strange. Uh, but uh, the director talked about how uh, they wrote the movie with the, uh, with with uh, Jason Schwartzman in mind. He he was he was involved in the beginning, and so they they had written the part with you know, for Jason Schwartzman. But they they had they had uh, the devil's own time trying to figure out who was going to play um, uh, Carla, the, the woman in the the, the woman in the, in, in the in the story. And the director said that one night um, shortly after he got married, he, uh, he he like sat up in bed and said, "Carol Kane." That's it, <laughs> and like you know, just like a revelation. And then he like texted texted the producers and the people he's working with on the movie, and they were like, "Well, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> like, why didn't we think of that? Right. Um, I want to have you mention, um, I guess now until the end of the festival, which is what Sunday. Um, yep. You you can you can view movies online. Yeah, uh, the the festival is a hybrid festival, uh, most mostly in person, and I've been going in person since it started a week ago. Um, but for the last four days, so starting we started yesterday and it'll go through Sunday, uh, the uh, the the festival is available online. And several of the not all of the titles, but several of the titles that have premiered in Park City and in Salt Lake City uh, will be available online on the festivals uh, on on the Sundance portal, uh, the web portal. 
uh, and people can watch them from home. And this is this is something that grew out of out of the pandemic years, uh, 2021 and 2022. The festival was online only because obviously it wasn't safe for everybody to gather in Park City. Uh, and this is something that they decided that one of the one of the things that came out of that, one of the things they liked was the fact that it was a more accessible festival. There are people who can't make it to Park City. There are people who can't handle uh, going up and down the hill in Park City uh, that uh, that uh, um, would would want a different a different way to experience all the all the stuff the festival has to offer. So yeah, so they um, uh, several of the movies. Uh, all the all the competition films are available online now through Sunday night. Uh, it's it's a pretty it's 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 a pretty good system. It does I mean it, it does cost money to buy tickets and and buy passes and so on, um, but you you do get that chance. And then start um, today later today the um, they'll be announcing the award winners for the festival. All the the juries will choose the 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 grand jury prize and all the other award winners. And all those films will get um, special slots and special screenings uh, for uh, online and also in person over the last weekend at the festival up in Park City and in Salt Lake. Um, so I want to just ask you open-ended, um, what's uh, mm -hmm. what's maybe the most interesting film you've uh, seen at Sundance so far? Well, the, my favorite, um, my favorite, I, I, love, I really liked The Real Pain. Um, I really liked Love Me, which was uh, one of the more talked about going into the festival this was a this was a uh, sort of a science fiction romance uh set in the near future after humanity is gone uh and you have a um a a, a smart buoy so a little little robot floating in the water and a satellite orbiting the planet and they start talking to each other and uh they start using the database uh, available to try to emulate human relationships and a lot of the database is YouTube influencer videos. And yeah, that sounds fascinating. One of one of my colleagues one of my colleagues described it as it, what would happen if Wally had been watching YouTube instead of Hello Dolly. <laughs> uh, and it and and the the avatars for these two uh, for the buoy and the satellite are played by Kristen Stewart and Stephen Wen from Minari and Walking Dead. Uh, and it's actually it's actually sort of a it, it's a great it, it's an interesting romance and it's also an interesting comment on uh, on on what human beings do to you know to be to be in to be in a romance you know what 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 uh, uh, what they have what they have to show to the show to the other person and show to the world uh, uh, to to be in a romance. Oh, just uh, so uh... that was. Yeah. Oh, I, I, sorry. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to have you mention um, this is a separate article uh, from this week. Uh, mm -hmm. The the Utah makers of Napoleon Dynamite uh, yes. have been nominated for an Oscar for a uh, it was this in the category of short um, animated film. Animated short. Yes. Animated short. Um, yeah. The the festival this year it's their fortieth edition, so it's the fortieth year that that Robert Redford's Sundance Institute has been running the festival. And uh, they did a lot. They did a lot of. Uh, they did a, several screenings of classic movies that have come through the festival in the past. And one of them, classic, definitely a classic, is Napoleon Dynamite. The, the twenty years ago, Napoleon Dynamite uh, came to the Sundance, and everybody wondered what the heck was this. <laughs> uh, and Jared and Jerusha Hess, the the, uh, the 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 team, the, the husband and wife team that that made Napoleon Dynamite, uh, they are. They are still making movies. Matter of fact, Jared is down in uh, New Zealand right now, uh, directing the Minecraft movie. Oh wow! Uh, big blockbuster based on the mm -hmm. Minecraft video game. And Jerusha, uh, you know, she's she's directed movies. She she co-writes a lot of of what Jared directs. Um, 
So they work together, but they still live in Salt Lake. So they, they, they still live here. And it's it's really cool if they can have this life where they can be making movies and doing the Hollywood thing, but they still get to have a, a normal life in Salt Lake City. Uh, they directed a short uh, animated film uh, with, with help, with the uh, support from the Salt Lake Film Society. So the folks that run the Broadway. Uh, uh, the, their MAST program, which which is a media accelerator uh, program. Uh, they, they directed a short film called 95 Senses. It's animated. Uh, a lot of the animators came from here. Uh, the writing, one of the writers is a professor at the University of Utah. Uh, it is about 14 minutes. It's narrated by Tim Blake Nelson, who you would know from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and many other movies. Uh, and it is an old man describing his... His, the five senses and thing memories that come from that and it is i can't say much more other than it takes a turn mm. all uh, right that, so it's really good it's been nominated for an oscar in the animated short category which is very cool uh and so yeah jared and drew should get to go to the oscars okay wonderful well uh, yeah sundance ongoing through uh through sunday uh, sean means thanks for telling us about it happy to uh, so let's go to our underplayed stories of the week. We'll have to be uh, somewhat brief here, but uh, uh, Jessica Miller, what's your underplayed story of the week? Yeah, I chose the story that Peyton Harkins wrote about um, a, a proposal from a legislator to sell the Utah State Hospital. Um, he makes the argument that we should you know, spread out these resources throughout the state, but I think that what Peyton found is um, that land is very coveted, and I think that we're seeing a little bit of what we saw with the prison of, you know, we built this thing many years ago in like a swamp or, you know, area that was not really wanted. And now it's kind of prime real estate. And so it'll be interesting to see if we see the kind of the same process happening with the Utah State Hospital that we saw for years with the prison property in Draper. You can check that out at sltrib.com. Thank you. Sean Means, what's your underplayed story of the week? Um, I'm going to go with uh, Andy Larson, our, our sports writer and data columnist. He, he's he been interested in a long time wanting to look into why restaurants uh, are such a, a, a dicey proposition as a business. And so he, uh, he actually found a uh, Annie's Diner in Kaysville was willing to open their books and let him let him uh, pour through them. So get, and uh, what what he wrote gives you a great understanding of why the restaurant business is such a tough road for, for people. But also by talking to, to uh, the, the folks that own Annie's, uh, why they love it and why they do it, even though uh, the money sometimes is is a difficult thing. Check that one out at sltrib.com. Uh, all of these stories we've been talking about, sltrib.com. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We've been joined today by Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson-Stern, investigative reporter Jessica Miller, and culture editor Sean P. Means. Thanks to each of them. Thanks to you for listening. I hope you join us next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>